All right, if we have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to be looking at chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. <laughs> and um, uh, next Sunday I'm preaching, we're going to cover the entire New Testament. So, but, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Twenty years after the Philistines had returned the Ark of the Covenant, the Bible tells us that the the whole house of Israel began to seek the Lord. And so Samuel told them to remove your idols, and they did. And then he called the people to Mizpah. And at Mizpah, that was when they renewed their commitments to God, and it it was a revival. And it was at that point when Samuel began to officially judge the nation as a whole. Uh, in the closing words there in, in that chapter, it talks about how Samuel is, is making a circuit around the country and judging. And so it was at Mizpah when that began. And so 20 years later, after that ark had returned, was this revival that we looked at last Sunday. And so chapter 7 ends by telling us that Samuel judged Israel throughout his life. This was his life's work. Um, It wasn't, I'm going to work 25 years here, then I'm going to go retire here at the beach or whatever. It was something he did his entire life. He understood his his life was something to be used by God until it was all used up. This is the way chapter 7 ends. So by the time we turn to chapter 8, by the time chapter 8 opens, some time has passed. And Samuel is now old. We'll begin reading in verse 1, chapter 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son's name was Joel, and his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Beersheba is in the very southernmost part of Israel. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. Ramah is where Samuel lived. And they said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not follow your example. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. And when they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand to be sinful. And so he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, he said, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me. They're doing the same thing to you that they've done to me since the day I brought you out of Egypt until now. Abandoning me and worshiping other gods. He said, listen to them, but you must solemnly warn them and tell them about the rights of the king who would rule over them. From chapters 1 through 4, we learn about Elkanah and Hannah, Samuel's parents. And from what we are told about them, they lived for God their entire life. And from what we know, Samuel lived for God his entire life. 
But Samuel was raised by Eli the high priest. Remember that Samuel was brought to the temple, the tabernacle, when he was just a little boy, probably three years old. And he was raised, he lived and died, or lived and was raised all the way up to, to, to the point when he began to prophesy and judge the nation as a whole. He lived at the tabernacle his entire life. And so Samuel's parents were godly. They lived for God, as best we can tell. And Samuel lived for God, but Samuel was raised, not by them, he was raised by the high priest. In contrast, we know that the high priest had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they did not know God. The Bible tells us that they were wicked. The Bible tells us that they were, they were wicked. But they were also raised by Eli, the high priest. What are we to make of that? Was Eli, was Eli's life work in the tabernacle? And that's where Samuel was, and it was the focal point of his life and just the environment and Samuel grew up right. Was Hophni and Phinehas raised by their mom and she wasn't godly? I mean, we just don't know, do we? We have no idea. We know there's one guy who raised Samuel and he also raised Hophni and Phinehas. Are we to uh, praise and commend Eli for doing a good job with Samuel and then criticize him for doing a bad job with Hophni and Phinehas? Well, what about Samuel? Samuel clearly lived for God. And look at his boys, these grown men. They do not walk in their dad's ways. They uh, are turning towards dishonest gain. They're taking bribes and they're perverting justice. This should give us pause before we jump to conclusions too quickly about parents and how their kids are turned out. It should give us some pause. We don't want to minimize the, the responsibility of a parent, the, the influence that a parent has, and the accountability that comes along with being a parent. But there is one thing that we can say for sure. And that is that God judges each one of us individually. And this is exactly what we see in this text. Everything we've been studying up to this point for Samuel, even in the book of Judges, is that God judges parents individually. And God judges children individually. And we will say this while we remind ourselves that we do have influence and responsibility. There is accountability. So we got a guy named Eli who devoted his life to the temple. We got Samuel who devoted his life for God, and two of their boys didn't turn out right. So it's a, quite an indictment on the ministry. Maybe, maybe, maybe you shouldn't ever be a pastor or do anything for God because your kids might turn out bad. Obviously, my point is this: that. People have grown up in horrible environments and turned out wonderful. People have grown up in good environments and turned out bad. 
People make their own choices. And parents, we do have a duty and responsibility. Grandparents have a responsibility to, to put in your two cents when you have the opportunity to, to guide and direct and show people the right way and to turn, point people towards God. But ultimately, each one of us makes the decision ourselves. And so the, the elders of Israel are in a real tough spot because Samuel's successors are his two boys. And they are so corrupt that the nation cannot submit to their leadership. They have a problem. And if I was like them or them, I can see why they said, Samuel, give us a king. Why don't we just have a king? Let's be done with this. Who's going to judge now? And what's going to happen? And it's all so loosey-goosey. And I just, I just can't wrap my mind around that. It's just too difficult for me to, to live like this. Let's just have a king. So I can see why they would do that. They said, you're old. Your sons don't follow your example. Appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. And we saw here that Samuel thought that what they were asking was sinful. And so he went to God and he said, they've asked for a king. And God said, well, you need to listen to them very carefully. Listen to what it is that they're saying. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. They're doing the same things to you that they do to me. If we're not careful in this passage, we will take our focus and look just at the historical significance of Israel having a king and we'll miss the major point, which is that the people were rejecting God. We want to make sure we understand that because this is what is happening and this is what is central to all, although this is playing out, unraveling in certain ways, we always want to remember that what's really happening here, is the major problem is that the people are asking for a king by rejecting God. As far as God was concerned, their request was equivalent with forsaking him. Israel was not supposed to be like all of the other nations. God was their king. He directed them through the law, through the Levites, through prophets, through men like Moses and Joshua and Samuel. But God knew that there was going to come a point when they wanted a centralized government, when they wanted a centralized military. He knew this was going to happen, and so we see this predicted in the Old Testament. God told Jacob, he said that your descendants are going to be kings. And then at the end of his life, in Genesis 49, Jacob identifies the tribe of Judah. He says the king Messiah will come through you. And then much later, in Deuteronomy 17, God is talking to Moses, and he's telling Moses, he says, there's going to come a time where they're going to ask for a king. And when they do this, I want you to do these things. And he gave some very specific instructions about what to do when that happened. So here we are, it's Samuel. Moses has already died. And so what does Samuel do? Samuel does the same thing you and I do. And we go backwards and we look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. So we can be sure that Samuel was reading Deuteronomy chapter 17. And God told Samuel, uh, he, he said uh, to listen carefully 
to what they're saying when they were asking for a king. He said, he said not, not their words, but what's behind the words. That is a very important that is a very important skill that each one of us learn, needs to learn how to do. When you're in an argument, everything is all about the one thing that's happened. You know. But you're not really arguing about how you forgot to put gas in the car or the bread. There's underlying things, deeper things. And so when you're in an argument, if you're just thinking about how I didn't put gas in the car because this and this and this. Why can't you see that? You horrible person. You're so close-minded. We're not talking about the gas in the car, are we? And so this is what God is saying to Samuel. He's saying, listen to what they're saying. Listen to what is behind their words. Because the problem was the people were rejecting God's leadership. They wanted to act independently. They wanted to uh, have, have control. They wanted to have control over the government and how things were going to go. They wanted to, to plan and organize and have a say in it and just be able to see the future. They wanted to be able to plan and control the government and the, and the military. Uh, basically, their future. It's hard to criticize them for that because that's the way we all operate in America. You know, you take a little kid, you give them a, a birthday present or Christmas present, and they're so excited about it, they've got it, and they're trying to put the pieces together, or figure out how to make it do what they know it's supposed to do, and they're just, and you try to take it from them, say, hey, let me do that for you. They're, no, I got it. Don't they? They pull it away. And they just keep trying, and you can see that they keep trying to put the round peg in the square hole, and they just can't seem to get it. And you try to, try to take it, so let me show you, let me show you, come on, let me show you, I'll give it back to you. They won't listen to it until they, they finally have to. They've completely given up. They can't fix it. They can't do it. Okay, Dad. Okay, Grandpa. You, and they hand it to you, and then you, you fix it, and you show them how it works. You give it back to them. But they don't want to give it to you because they don't want to lose control. They want to be in charge. They want to be independent. I think this is maybe one of the the, the biggest sins of the church in America. Self-reliance. We want to be in charge of how we meet our own needs. We have too much emphasis on our retirement plan or relying on our job. Some people rely on government assistance. And this is where your life is in the balance. You've got all of your eggs in that. You guys know, most of you know where I work at. I don't want those people to own me. I can walk away from that. I'll find it somewhere else. I'll find another job. I'll make ends meet. They don't own me. God owns me. I live for Him. And I know that even though I've got a retirement that I'm working on, that that thing can get taken away by a governor like that. You know, you just can't live like that. But this is what we do in America. We, we plan and we have goals. And it's all designed for us to have some control over our destiny. And it, it takes away. It's this, this, is what, this is what Israel was doing. 
I grew up poor, and I watched my parents struggle in the ministry. And people put food on our porch. They put clothes on our porch. And, you know, I told you these stories. We, we didn't have a lot of money. And I was critical of my parents for that. But now that I'm older, I can look back and I see that they were making sacrifices for the ministry. I didn't see it like that at all. It made my heart just turn black and hard. And I was mad, you know. But years later, when I decided that maybe I want to go to the ministry, I started entertaining the idea. And I was listening to all these young married couples that were in seminary and how they had to work all these jobs and they were struggling and they didn't know how ends were going to meet, how they were going to make ends meet. They just didn't know where their next meal was coming from. But God always came through. God always took care of them. That just did not appeal to me. I've got to be honest with you. And so God knows that I decided to play it safe. And I think that this is one of the biggest problems of the church, especially here in America. Of course, there, like I said, there is a balance to all of this. You know, there is goals and planning. That's wise. There's nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong with self-reliance. It's, a, it's centered in pride. And, you know, when we are in control of our life and we decide to let God in at different points, okay, we'll let God in. Well, we only let him in under our terms. And so basically, he's got to fit in to our stuff. We've got this apparatus, and if we'll let God in, but he's got to fill that. And all of a sudden, we're conforming God to the image we want or the image that we're comfortable with. And we know that there's another word for that. It's called idolatry. In verse 8, it tells us that when they wanted to, when they asked for this king, they were upset. He says, they're doing the same thing to you that they've done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until now. And this is a very important point that Jesus is making, God's making there with Samuel, because he's saying that if you're going to live for me, if you're going to be my representative at work with your neighbors, wherever, if you're going to do that, then people are going to reject you just like they reject me. Paul tells us that, or Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.13, he says that we are to rejoice as we share in the sufferings of Christ. And we know Paul said the same thing many times. What these people were doing, they were trading God for human ruler. And it's hard to imagine that. You know, um, I remember one time these, uh, you know, there's a curfew. And so sometimes when you drive around, lights on top and these kids are out running under, underage out there violating the curfew. I'll never forget this time. These, these kids were in this park and I kind of rolled up and we've got these little spotlights. You know, I shine that on. I turn my lights. And, yeah, they all just took off running. You know how, you, how you're so scared you're trying to run faster than you can run. They're falling down, getting back up and running. And it was a lot of fun. I think about these Philistines 
when the, 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 all of Israel was at Mizpah for this wonderful revival. All 12 tribes were there. And it was such an exciting, wonderful time. But when the Philistines saw it, they thought, well, they're getting ready for war. They're unifying. They're getting ready for war. So they got their armies together, and they were marching against Israel. And they were going to attack Israel right in the middle of this revival. And the Bible tells us that God threw them into confusion with thunder. That's all he needed was some thunder. And completely dis disorganized that army. And they were on the run, and Israel chased them down and put the whooping on them really bad to the point to where Philistines kind of left them alone for quite a while, most of the time Samuel led. But they traded that God for a human ruler. And so in verse 9 of chapter 8, and I told you we got five chapters to go, so we're going to be here a while. <laughs> Just kidding. So, but uh, in chapter 8 there, in verse 9, it says that uh, uh, there's a warning. He said, he said, listen to them, he says, but you must solemnly warn them. Make sure you impress upon them what's getting ready to happen if they do this. Tell them that a king has rights. The guy that you're wanting to let rule over you has rights. And so for the remainder of the chapter, it talks about the rights of the king. It's going to come at a great cost. And the key word in the remainder of the chapter is the word take. You can see it there beginning of verse 11. These are the rights of the king who will rule over you. He can take your sons. He's going to take your sons. He's going to use them in the military. He's going to use them for farming. He's going to use them for manufacturing. They're going to be making weapons and they're going to be making farm implements. He's just going to take your boys and he's going to put them to work. He's going to take your daughters. They're going to be perfumers. I'm not sure what that is. It doesn't sound too rough. But they're going to be cooks and bakers. Your livestock and, and your food, I'll, I'll, he'll take a tenth. The land, he's going to take your best fields. Not your worst ones, but your best ones. He's going to take your best fields, your best orchards, your best vineyards. And even your servants that people have... You know how it worked back then is like if you owed people money, you would maybe your son would go work for him, you know, until you to pay off that debt. Well, the king could take that. So you lose that. So this is going to come at a great cost. It was kind of an enslaving atmosphere where the king enriched himself while impoverishing the people. But in verse 19, there in chapter 8, it tells us that the people refused to listen to Samuel. So God told Samuel, appoint a king for him. And one of the biggest points we made last Sunday is we talked about revivals and how you can't just decide in your mind that you're going to repent. It just doesn't happen like that. It's, a, it's actually a gift. Just like faith is a gift. For you have been saved by grace through faith. It is the gift it's something that God gives you. You don't have it. You don't possess it. He gives it to you. And so you can't, you know, we can have a bad, big gigantic band up here and we can wail and do crazy stuff or whatever. Try to manufacture a revival. You can't. Not a real one. Not inside here. It has to be a, that special work of the Holy Spirit. And so this is crystal clear here in what we just talked about in chapter 8 where Samuel 
explain to them why they don't want a king. You're trading God for a human ruler who's going to do this stuff to you. Logic did not change their hearts. This is an illustration of how you cannot manipulate and manufacture a revival. It's a special work of the Holy Spirit. So when you're trapped in the middle of a habit, if you're trapped in a rut in some way, or whatever's going on in your life, guess what? The only person who can get down on one knee and take those shackles off of your ankles is God. And so we talked about some things you can do to bring that. Being in agreement with God about the things He's saying. Agree with Him. Pray to Him. Ask Him to change things. To change your heart. To cause it to happen. Make me want to live right. Make me be like you want me to be. Fast. We talked about fasting. Give up some donuts. Give up a... Give up a meal. Just one day. Just give up a meal. But don't tell anybody. It's a secret. It's something to deprive yourself of something. That's the purpose of fasting, by the way. It's not to lose weight. You know, it's not a, you don't go on a diet and say you're fasting. Give me a break. Fasting is you're depriving yourself of something, whether it's television or show or, what, or food or whatever, to, so that your attention is directed towards God and what's on your heart. That's why you do it. And so it's a secret. So we talked about some of those things last Sunday, and I'm starting to talk about last week, and we, we want to keep moving here. But As we come to the close of chapter 8, we begin to look at... I should have given you that slide, so you guys kind of got ripped off because you didn't get that one. So chapters 9 through 12. What's getting ready to happen in these next chapters? And obviously we're not going to be able to read through them. I'm going to be skimming through on some things. But what we're getting ready to see is that God is going to be merciful to the nation of Israel even though what they're asking Him to do is sinful. They are insulting Him in the worst possible way and you might be thinking to yourself, well, what? Oh, you want a king? I'll give you a king. But God doesn't do that. He gives them someone who has the potential of being a great leader and a godly man. This is what we see God do. This is how God responds. And that speaks highly of the person and the character of who God is, how, how nice He is, and just... He's just the best. There's nobody like Him. We don't want to miss that. Let's read a few verses of chapter 9, beginning of verse 1. It says, There's an influential man of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, and son of Berkaroth, son of Abiel, son of Benjamite. Big deal. Big deal. Kish is Saul's dad. And this is from the tribe of Benjamin. Remember how the tribe of Benjamin almost got completely wiped out? Saul. Verse 2. He was a son named Saul. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head, tall, he stood a head taller than anyone else. And one day the donkeys of Saul's father, Kish, wandered off. And Kish said to his son Saul, Take one, take one of the attendants with you and go look for the donkeys. So we see that Saul is a very impressive man. And 
the dad has these donkeys that have gotten loose. And he tells Samuel to grab one of the servants, grab one of your attendants, and go find him. And Saul does. He goes and he's... The text will tell us that he goes all over the place looking for these donkeys and he can't find them. And three days pass. And they've ran out of food. And Saul's saying, well, we need to head back home because my dad's going to be more worried about what happened to us than he is the donkeys. But the attendant says, well, you know what? There's a guy that lives right over there who is a man of God. He's a prophet. And whatever he says comes true. Let's go ask him. They're talking about Samuel. And so let's go ask him. And Saul says, well, what can we take him? We don't have anything. We're out. We don't even have any food to offer him. Nothing. It's a gift. And the attendant had a silver coin. And he says, well, we'll give him this. He says, okay. So they go and they find Samuel. And the Bible tells us that a day before Saul and this attendant arrived, God told Samuel, he said, the guy I want you to appoint as a king is going to come to you tomorrow. And I want you to do these things when he comes. Chapter 9, verses 15. Now the day before Saul's arrival, the Lord had informed Samuel. He said, at this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the hand of the Philistines because I've seen their affliction of my people for their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here's the man I told you about. He's going to rule over my people. And so... It's kind of funny. He comes up and he asks Samuel. He says, well, we're looking for the seer. And Samuel says, well, I'm the seer. I'm the prophet. And Samuel ends up telling him that he is going to be the king. That God wants him to be the ruler. And he's got that classic reaction where he says, me? You know, Lord, I can't speak well. I mean, how many times have we seen this in the Bible where people will say, who am I? Not me. In verse 21, he says, Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest of Israel's tribes? And isn't my clan the least important out of all of these clans of the Benjamite tribe? And so if God were to tell you to do something and you responded, uh, I think you got the wrong person. God loves to grab people like you. If you say, who am I? You are a good candidate. And so Saul stayed and they had dinner together. I'm skipping all kinds of details, but they, they had a meal together. Then after the meal, Saul and Samuel go up on a rooftop and they have this, this long conversation. And Samuel explains things to Saul. Then in the morning, Saul set out to leave after he had been anointed by Samuel to be the king, after he had been entrusted with God's inheritance. Verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1. Samuel took the flask of oil, he poured it on Saul's head, and he kissed him, and he said, The Lord has anointed you ruler over his inheritance. 
inheritance is people, God's people. We think of an inheritance as money. Our mom's dishes. God, an inheritance is people. I want us to notice one other thing is that when these donkeys got loose, Saul told his Samuel, Kish told his son, Saul, he said, go find the donkeys. I need you to go look for them. Grab your attendant and go, right? So who sent Saul to go look for the donkeys? His dad. But it was really God. It was really God. God caused those donkeys to get loose. And God sent Saul to Samuel. The fact that Saul was the kind of man who would help his dad. He was at home. He was available to his father. And he didn't just go look a little bit and come back and say, Dad, I don't know where they're at. i got stuff to do. For three days until he ran out of food. Until he knew his dad was worried. Saul was an obedient son who valued his father's opinion. Wanted to, wanted to make his dad happy. This is the kind of man that God chose. And the fact that his heart was in that place, it put him in the center of God's will because it was in the center of God's will for Saul to see Sam, to see Samuel, right? And when the attendant, when, when Saul said, we need to get back, my dad's going to be worried, we're out of food, he said, well, why don't we go see this guy, this man of God? This is a servant. If Saul was a proud man, he would have said, you know, I'm not taking your advice. I know you mean well, kid, but come on. Saul listened to this, to this wise counsel. He was a person who would listen. And he went to see this Samuel. And because Saul was the kind of guy who would listen, that placed him right in the center of God's will. Well, this moves us into chapter 11. So we're really covering some grass here. But in chapter 11, we find out that there is um, the Ammonites. And you will remember that there's Ammon and Moab or the descendants of, of Lot and, and what happened there. And, and they lived to the east of Israel. And they were east and south of Israel. And they were their enemies. It always caused them all kinds of problems. And so while the Philistines are kind of on the web or on the edge and they're over on the coast and they're not really being aggressive at this point because God's kind of put them down. These guys over here look at Israel as ripe territory. Let's go get what they got. And so the Ammonites are now wanting to, to come into Israel. And it tells us there in verse 1 of chapter 11 that Nahash the Ammonite came up and he laid siege to Jabesh, Jabesh Gilead. And we remember where that is from the book of Judges. And all of the men of Jabesh, the Israelites, said to the king of Ammon, well, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Isn't that awful? So he says, okay, well, I'm going to take out everybody's right eye. That's what you can, you're going to do if you're going to enter into a treaty with me because I'm going to disgrace you. This is what this king says. It's 
So there's like a seven-day ceasefire where the, the Jewish people tell this king, they said, okay, well, we're going to do it. But we're going to send word to our other tribes to see if they want to come and help us. If they don't, then so be it. And so they sent word. And what do you think when this hits Saul's ears? Saul comes in off the field and they tell him that these folks on the eastern side of the Jordan are getting ready to make this treaty with Amon. Take out their right eye. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of the Lord entered Saul. And events evolve to where Amon and his army is slaughtered. As chapter 12 opens, Samuel is giving his final address. It's the last we're going to hear of him speaking. He's got a lot to say in this chapter. Just final address to the people. And Samuel has some, some tough words for them. He's bringing up again the fact that they have rejected God by asking for a king. And he will say to them, let me see what verses I want to read to you. This is the, this is the, the synopsis, verses 8 through 12. This is the synopsis of what God has been doing for them and brought them up to this point. Verse 8, When Jacob went to Egypt, your ancestors cried out to the Lord and He sent them Moses and Aaron. And they led your ancestors out of Egypt and you settled them and they settled you in this place, this land that you have. But they forgot the Lord their God and so God handed them over to Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor. This is in the book of Judges we studied. To the Philistines of the king of Moab. And these enemies fought against them. And then they cried out to the Lord and they said, We have sinned, we've abandoned the Lord, and we've worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Now deliver us from the power of our enemies and we will serve you. So the Lord sent Jerubbabel, Barak, and Jephthah, Samuel. And he rescued you from the power of these enemies around you and, and you lived securely. But when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, was coming against you, and you said to me, No, we must have a king rule over us, even though the Lord your God is your king. And the people cried out, and they asked Saul, Samuel to intercede for them with God, because they realized what they had done. Well, as our study of the book of Judges, the period of the Judges comes to a close, there are very, two very important points that we do not want to miss. This is in closing. The first one is that God wants us to succeed. We think about Saul, and, and I don't know how much you know about him. I don't know if you know what happens later, because there is the, the rise of King Saul and there's the fall of King Saul. God chose Saul and God will reject Saul. Saul was an impressive man. He stood ahead, ahead above everybody else. 
He looked like a king. He looked like a leader. But God looks at the heart. And we found that out when David was chosen of all of the brothers. Remember? He said, man, is, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Well, he did the same thing when he picked Saul. He saw, he saw Saul's heart. He saw a man who was capable and had the potential of being a godly, great leader for the nation. And so he did everything he could to make that happen. We saw that some of the, I've already mentioned some of the things about Saul that I can see why God would chose him. He had a servant's heart, submitting to his dad. He would listen to advice. So these are things that we might want to have in our lives. A servant's heart. We might be open to advice. And he had humility. Outwardly, he was very impressive, but on the inside, he said, Who? Me? That's humility. These are three key ingredients in someone who is available to God. That's what God's looking for. You know, Jesus gave us the Great Commission, and He told us to go out into all the world to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? This is our commission. It's our mandate as a church. He wants us to succeed. God doesn't want us to fail. And that's really important for us to remember that God is in our... Like, I look at my kids, and all I want is for them to have the best and to do good and have the whatever I can do to so that they can have a good life. What can I do? Don't worry about what you've done up to this point. This day forward, what can you do? My heart is, for my kids has always been, what can I do for you guys? And I've got grandchildren now, and so I look at my grandkids, and all that's all I care about with them too. My grandchildren. God feels the exact same way for us. He wants us to succeed as believers. He doesn't want to punish us and treat us rotten to, to get our heads, minds straight. You know, He doesn't want to have to put us through all those things. God loves us. And He wants us to succeed. We look at, we look at what He did with Samuel. I didn't read it. But in chapter 10, verse 9, when Saul was kind of freaking out that God had chose him, the Bible tells us that God changed his heart. What an incredible statement. And the Lord opened Lydia's heart, and she believed. And Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. God changed Saul's heart. This is what we're asking for in revival. That's what you want. When you're stuck in something, you're asking God to change your heart. Because if He changes your heart about it, you don't want to do it anymore. It's, you don't have to try not to do it, try not to do it. You don't want to do it anymore. You want to live right. So we're asking God to change your heart. This is what He did. This is evidence of why God chose Saul and wanted him to succeed. He, he changed his heart. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God took control of him in chapter 10, verse 6. In chapter 10, verse 10. In chapter 11, verse 6. And then it tells us that there were valiant men whose hearts God had touched that He surrounded them with. He gave Saul godly counsel and guys who had His back. God wants us to succeed. He does the same thing. 
Who's, who's the valiant man that God's put in your life? It's us right here. This is why you go to church. You're not checking off a box or trying to get on some good list with God. You come here because this is where the other Christians are. We're believers. And we draw strength from each other. When you're gone, you don't come to church one Sunday. We all miss you. We're looking for you. We look for each other. We're a family. The second point is that no matter how much we've messed up, we should still turn back to God because there's no place else to go. And He wants us to, be, to succeed. In chapter 12, verse 20, Let's read 19. They pleaded with Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so we won't die. For we have added to our sins the evil of requesting a king of our, for ourselves. I can't go back to church. I've done too much. I've been, I've been too sinful. I'm a hypocrite if I go back to church. I, God, the, the, I'll be struck down with lightning if I go back to church. That is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Look at verse 20. Samuel replied, Don't be afraid. Even though you have committed all this evil, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord with your heart, with all of your heart. Don't turn away and follow worthless things. Verse 22, The Lord will not abandon His people because of His great name and because He is determined to make you His own people. Chapter 12 ends with a cliffhanger. Samuel took the flask of oil, he poured it on Saul's head, he kissed him and he said, hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over His inheritance? And by chapter 16, verse 1, the Bible says, I have rejected him as king over Israel. Such a shift. What happened? What happens between chapter 10 and chapter 16? When we, when we open chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we find out God has rejected Saul as king. What happened? Here's the cliffhanger. Verse 24. This is the closing of the chapter. Above all, fear the Lord and worship Him faithfully with all your heart considering the great things He's done for you. However, if you continue to do what is evil, both you and your king will be swept away. <clears throat> 